Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan. I'm here with my co-host, Emily Jane Fox. Hi, Emily. Hi, Joe. We uh, find ourselves in a very mercurial moment in history. Mm. We don't know what's going to happen next, what has happened in the last two weeks, two months, has altered everything we can think, everything we thought <laughs> uh, was a solid reality has melted under our feet. And there's all this incredible feeling of possibility and danger. And there's talk of, you know, a new civil war. Don't read Matt Drudge, whatever you do. If you want to, like, survive psychologically, just that's a, As a general rule. As a general rule, it's an, uh, full of alarm. You know, we're talking about civil war statues coming down. There's talk of, you know, taking down the Washington Monument. You know, there's uh, incredibly powerful political energy in this country right now. There is, it feels like the very, very, very begin beginning of absolutely necessary progress and conversations and listening that have been so long overdue and, uh, a lot has changed in the last two weeks, not nearly enough, and I think we're really just at the start of what will continue to change and evolve. Uh, I feel sad. I feel um, ignorant. I feel uh, hopeful for what is to come, and I feel like we are just at the start of what will be a pivotal moment in United States history, particularly because of the protests because of the pandemic. And we are also in an election year where all of those things will be given, we'll have a referendum on them, an up or down vote on what we want this country to look like over the next two, five, six, eight years. And that is a the most powerful right and responsibility that we have as Americans right now. I mean, part of it is staying at home. Part of it is listening or lending your voice or your pocketbook or your platform. And a huge part of it is how we're able to turn up in November and the energy that we are feeling over the last couple of weeks to make our values known will transfer into what we decide to do in November. And Joe, that is why the interview that you've done this week is sort of my fantasy interview. We've talked about it for weeks about what's going to happen in November when it comes to voting, both because of um, the pandemic and we don't know where that's going to be in the fall, but because our, our system of elections in this country is not set up to have a, a vote by mail, though that will be incredibly important this year and incredibly important in reshaping the electorate going forward. And I know that you have two of the best of the best to talk about this this week. Can you tell us a little bit more about what we can expect from your conversation? Well, well, it's exactly as you say, we've been talking about it a lot in past episodes. Um, can there be an election? Uh, can there be a fair election? You know, Joe Biden this week on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah uh, is saying uh, the president is going to try to steal this election. He said it was his, his greatest his greatest concern. And what people need to know is that on the issue of voting and the rules around voting in all 50 states, and every state's different, the battle lines are being drawn right now about the fate 
of our electoral system and the fate of our country. You know, I hate to be dramatic, but it's just true. And at the front lines of that are Mark Elias, uh, a general counsel representing uh, the Democratic National Committee on all issues of mail-in voting, voter suppression, voting rights, uh, and Dale Ho from the ACLU. Um, similarly, uh, both of them under you know are leading lawsuits against various states to change the rules so that they allow mail-in voting because you know there's a there's a virus. People don't want to wait in line, and we saw what happened in Georgia this week. Where, you know, a system breakdown means uh, a lot of people get disenfranchised and guess who, (laughs) you know, as it often turns out, it's people of color, it's immigrants, you know, it's people um, uh, in this in in urban areas. And so uh, the president of the United States is out there trying to convince um, his voters and other uh, Republican leaders to be suspicious of all attempts to make the voting system more egalitarian, more equal, and more just. Joe, can I ask and you something? He, shouldn't, yeah. we be, shouldn't we be suspicious about why there are lines down city blocks and city blocks and city blocks? Isn't that the thing that we should be sus- suspicious about, about why these systems have broken down, not about a very process-heavy system of voting by mail that takes months and months and months, if not years, to organize. That doesn't seem like something I'm suspicious of. That seems like progress in a direction that we should have made half a century ago. People being systematically exactly people being systematically told that they cannot vote in in places that have high populations of people of color. That's what I'm suspicious of. Yeah. It's just cra- it's crazy. It's upside down. I have a question for you. I want to hear the interview and I haven't heard it yet. My mm-hmm. my most pressing inter- uh, question about the interview and maybe a little bit of a spoiler alert, but do we think we're going to be able to effectively vote in November? Is that what the guys told you? Well, it absolutely will be able to vote, uh, but it's how you vote and the rules around how you can vote are going to be different from state to state. And, you know, you're going to look at certain states and they're going to become uh, contested. You know, there's the likelihood of them being contested. And there are lawyers on either side fighting from state to state to state about what you can do. You know, uh, the good news is, and in the positive direction, there have been Republican-controlled states who have allowed mail-in voting during the primaries because... Uh, they were under duress to have an election in the middle of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Now, between now and November, you're going to see the Trump administration trying to put pressure on uh, other Republican leaders in Republican-controlled states to try to limit access to people they assume are going to vote against them. And that's what we end up talking today about uh, with Mark Elias and Dale Ho. Um I should say that, you know, I was made more paranoid after talking to these guys. I thought they would sort of dismiss some of this, but in fact, they're deep in the trenches and they see the the battle that's going on here. You know, there's a um, conservative lawyer, William Cassavoy, who's sort of uh, works for uh, the Trump administration uh, as a counsel, but also for lots of conservative uh, right-wing organizations, and he's fighting the other way. Mm. He's showing up in the courts and trying to, you know, uh, purge the voter rolls, you know, to to limit who can vote. And so, you know, this is the fight 
of a lifetime. It's happening in courts. And, you know, some of the people who are fighting on uh, behalf of the voters, uh, you know, you, maybe you've never heard of him before. But Mark Elias is a pretty well-known guy. He was general counsel for Hillary Clinton in 2016, John Kerry in the previous election. And Dale Ho, I should just point out, because it's really an amazing um, feather in his cap, uh, argued before the Supreme Court and stopped the Trump administration's attempt to uh, put a citizenship question on the census um, applications and try to intimidate immigrants and, uh, you know, basically limit, again, who could vote. Well, he won. Uh, Dale Ho and the ACLU stopped that. Wow. So, you, you know, there are people fighting uh, the good fight here. Um, but uh, when they take you into the wilds, of what it is they're contending with, uh, it wakes you up to the fact that we all have to be very alert to this issue, to voting by mail, to how it's going to go down, and the funding for making the infrastructure possible and for educating people so that they know, hey, you're going to get something in the mail, fill it out and vote. So these are the issues that we get in today. Should we get into um, it? We're going to get into it. Let's go into it. And I just want to say... uh, these guys um, uh, very busy and in their court a lot, so I appreciated them coming on the program with us today. And I think that you're going to be uh, you're going to learn a lot about what's happening right now, and, um, and we're going to take you to the front lines of uh, of this coming election. And it could not be more um, the the importance of it could not have been more uh, made more clear and more underlined by the uh, than by what we've seen in the last week in this country. So let's go to that interview now. Mark Elias and Dale Ho, welcome to Inside the Hive. It's great to have you here. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Now I got to take a deep breath. There is a lot going on in the country right now. There was an election meltdown in Georgia this week where the electoral system broke down and largely African-American voters were disenfranchised uh, around the Atlanta area. And just last night, Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee, uh, had this to say to The Daily Show uh, with Trevor Noah. He says, this president is going to try to steal this election. It's my greatest concern, my single greatest concern. Now, I hadn't heard it put so bluntly as that. And Mark, uh, you're on the front lines of this. You represent the DNC and other Democratic organizations on voting rights and mail-in voting, fighting voter suppression. Is that fear justified? Do you share Joe Biden's uh, fear about this coming election? Yeah, I do. Um, the fact is that this is a president who came into office in uh, in November of or in January of, of of 2017, and even before he was sworn in, he was claiming that three million illegal ballots were cast in California, uh, and that's an election that he won. He has been demagoguing and lying about voting and voter fraud his entire term in office, and that has escalated in recent uh, recent weeks. And if you want to know what lengths he and the Republican Party will go to to uh, to try to suppress the vote, um, look what they did in Wisconsin. Right? They they went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and made people wait in hours-long lines and risk their health and disenfranchise thousands and thousands of voters along the way 
to win a state judicial election or to try to win a state judicial election uh, in Wisconsin. They ultimately lost it. But but if they were willing to do that for a state judicial election in Wisconsin, just imagine what Trump and the RNC will be willing to do in November. So I worry about it every single day. Yeah. Well, and you and uh, Dale are you know, representing, he's representing the ACLU, are both... Uh, dealing with the rules of the road from state to state to state and how this election is going to shape up, given the context we're in, the unprecedented context. Dale, when we spoke a few weeks ago, you know, the ACLU had a number of lawsuits underway to try to bring vote by mail into states where it's either not allowed or there's a lot of, you know, sort of pernicious rules that make it difficult. What is the status of your work today, like where where do we stand, and and which states are the kind of outliers, and you know some of them are battleground states, so people want to know about that. What where do things stand today? Yeah, sure. Under normal circumstances, thirty three states right now would be allowing every eligible voter to uh, vote by mail, or even taking the affirmative step of distributing ballots automatically to all registered voters. So that leaves seventeen states that during this primary season under their normal rules would only permit people to vote by mail if they had a particular excuse, like being you know, away, um, being over the age of 60 or 65 in some states, um, and the like. Now, of those 17 states, uh, 13 of them have relaxed that requirement for their primaries or runoffs, um, but only a few of them have committed to doing so for November. So. Well, I'm sort of gratified that some states across the political spectrum, ranging from, you know, Connecticut and Massachusetts and New York on the one hand, but even states like West Virginia and Indiana and um, Alabama, um, Kentucky, um, have permitted all eligible voters in their states to vote by mail, you know, during the pandemic, during the primaries. Um, That's good. Um, What's not great is that not all of those states have committed to doing so for Um, November. Um, Some of those states like South Carolina and Missouri have only done it after um, we and in in the case of South Carolina, Mark um, sued to um, make sure that everyone could vote safely during the pandemic. Um, But that leaves four states that are still resisting, um, even during the primaries. That's Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee, where we in Tennessee, we just got a ruling last week from a trial court judge there ordering the state to permit all voters to vote um, by mail. That, that case is going up on appeal right now, but basically we're honed in on those four states for um, elections this summer, and then kind of this broader group of uh, 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 just under 17 for November. Right. And so will the behavior of these states, and some of them are you know Republican states, and later we can talk about how true it is that, you know, Republicans across the board, not all of them are against mail-in voting. In fact, they just, they don't talk about it a lot because they don't want to go against Trump's messaging. But what we saw in the primaries, are, are do you expect that those states will, con, you know, continue or continue to do the mail-in voting in the fall? I mean, does it automatically translate if they did it in the primaries that they'll do it in the fall? Well, I do think it's conspicuous that the states that have made, the, that a number of the states that have made the commitment during uh, the primaries to protect their voters' health um, and permit everyone to vote by mail um, haven't 
all made the same commitment for November. And it's hard to read that in any way other than that the state um, in, in these particular states, uh, elections officials are trying to give themselves options for November, depending upon, you know, whatever, I hope not political considerations, but it's hard not to think that that's going to be part right. of the equation. And that's why we need to keep the pressure on them. Yeah, I mean, right. take, a look at, take a look at a state like Iowa, okay? Iowa, right. in, a, in an election season that was marred by, by a number of problems, Iowa actually had a remarkably smooth primary. The Republican Secretary of State sent absentee ballot applications to all voters. Um, it was a success. He celebrated it as a success. The counties, Democrat and Republican, um, celebrated it as a success. And immediately after the... Um, uh, that took place, the Republicans in the legislature are now moving a bill to ban the Secretary of State from doing that um, in November. And there's only one reason why they're doing that. And that's because Republicans are committed to making voting as hard as possible this fall, with a particular emphasis on making it harder for minority and young voters to vote in particular. And you know, whatever whatever else uh, they may be willing to do in the primaries when it doesn't matter, uh, you know, um, uh, I think we need to be prepared for, um, for you know, for them to heed Donald Trump's um, uh, ridiculous lies about voting by right. mail in the in the in the fall. It does it automatically follow that if you use mail in voting that that automatically helps Democrats? I mean, that's not exactly. Right. Is it? I mean, he's he's posited this as if it's, you know, accepted by Republicans. But that is it. Is it that clean of a truth that, you know, more people vote in by mail, the more it's going to help Democrats? Is that true? No, there's actually not much um, either uh, empirical evidence or experiential uh, evidence to suggest that, um, you know, most of the studies show that vote by mail doesn't have a partisan um, an inherent partisan benefit one way or the other. And of course, you know, as I oftentimes point out to people that when Colorado moved to an all-male election uh, in, uh, uh, in 2014, uh, you know, Democrats lost a very closely contested Senate race. So it doesn't immediately follow that vote by mail benefits Democrats or benefits Republicans. I think that what, what the president is banking on is that if he can suppress oh, in, through multiple channels, uh, suppress the vote of minority and young voters, then um, he can, that is his best chance to win. And, you know, when you look at, for example, a state like, uh, like Wisconsin, where there were only five polling locations open in the entire city of Milwaukee, where there are normally 180. And on top of that, you put in place uh, making it harder to vote by mail. What you basically just do is make it harder for people in cities to vote and particularly impact young and minority voters. You know, you go to the other, you know, you sort of look at the other end um, and a state like Nevada, where the Republican uh, secretary of state there, uh, though expanding vote by mail, uh, actually tried to close all of the in-person polling locations in the entire state, except for one per county. Well, that's that's ridiculous. Um, right. You know, it's a state that historically has almost entirely in-person voting, early in-person voting, and the closing of these uh, of these polling locations were understandably and predictably led to long lines in Nevada. Right. Wow. 
Um, so the uh, uh, to get mail-in voting to be effective for American voters in general, regardless of party, there's so much that has to be done. We just looked at Georgia, where you know they're trying to transition uh, to a different you know voting infrastructure overnight and having a total meltdown. Now that wasn't about mail-in voting; it was about some kind of computer meltdown. But it immediately became partisan. But there's a, a cost to setting up mail, mail by vote, voting by mail across the country, you know, and we where that money comes from, and there's a, a battle even in Congress to see whether there will be funding to educate voters, to build out, you know, the infrastructure to to mail it out and then to count it. Where are we with that presently? It's a really big elections administration challenge. It's maybe the most difficult elections administration challenge this country has faced since the 1864 presidential election was conducted during the Civil War, right? We have um, massive poll worker shortages during the primaries. In 2016, over half of poll workers were over the age of 60. Uh, We have a lot of polling locations that can no longer be used because they're closed, like schools and churches, or because they're at senior centers, where obviously we don't want to have a lot of crowding right now during the pandemic. So we're likely to see more voters assigned per polling location uh, in November than we've ever had in a presidential election, all at a time when we are being advised by public health officials not to congregate in large groups. And there's this you know, looming fear of a second wave of um, uh, COVID-19 in the fall. Uh, So it's a really, really big challenge. About 80 million people voted in person in 2016, and we want to try to transition as many of those people away from in-person Election Day voting, I think, as possible to make Election Day run more smoothly, not have the kinds of problems we had in Georgia uh, and Wisconsin, um, and and, and protect everyone's health. Uh, The Brennan Center for Justice estimates that states need about $2 billion for health and safety at the polls and to ramp up Um, absentee and mail-in voting options. Uh, So far, Congress has appropriated only about a fifth of that, $400 million. Um, Now, you know, uh, $2 billion might sound a lot like in under normal circumstances, but when Congress is appropriating, you know, literally trillions of dollars rightfully to respond to the pandemic, uh, we're we're talking about a rounding error, right, to make sure that our democracy still functions. a layer on top of that, the postal service, where you can't have vote by mail if you don't have a functioning postal service and the projections for insolvency um, by the end of summer and er- early fall, um, you, you know, uh, uh, states and the postal service need additional federal assistance at this point. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15 for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Dale, you were uh, wanting to return to an issue of like uh, the the sort of partisan issues 
around mail-in voting. What, what did you want to add to that? Yeah, I wanted to say that I agree with Mark 100% that empirically, historically speaking, there's no evidence that expanded access to voting by mail helps one party or another. You look at state, there are states like Utah, you know, reliably read state for the most part. You know, Mitt Romney came out and, you know, noted that 90% of voters in Utah vote by mail. And in his words, it's a very Republican state, right? There was a special election in California, you know, just last month um, that was conducted almost exclusively by mail and a Republican um, candidate won that. Um, So there are lots of examples of both parties doing well under expanded vote by mail systems. The caveat that I would um, stress here, though, is we're talking about having a vote by mail or expanding access to voting by mail right now in a situation where in-person voting on election day is not going to be as accessible as certainly would be optimal, right? Um, Right. And when you look at the pool of voters who vote in person on election day, you know, compared to the overall electorate, they tend to be um, younger. Um, in a lot of states, um, voters of color tend to vote on election day more frequently than, um, or, or, or rather, in, in greater proportions than they do, you know, by mail. Um, And so in the situation that we're talking about today, where we are talking about needing to expand mail-in voting opportunities to replace those lost or more difficult in-person election day voting, I think we are talking about trying to protect the rights. And I don't think Mark said anything that, you know, that, that, um, you know, cuts against this or that he would disagree with this, but we are talking about trying to protect particularly the rights of younger voters, voters of color, lower income voters who would normally vote on election day, but because of the elections administration difficulties, because of concerns about the pandemic, are going to be unable to or unwilling to do so. Right. Well, you know, the we've talked about like whether there actually is um, evidence of voter fraud in this country, especially through mail-in voting, and there's so little actual evidence. And it does seem to me that you know, Trump administration is trying to cast doubt on the election almost as a ploy to be able to question it no matter what, you know, just if it doesn't go his way, like an insurance policy of creating trouble, right? Because even where there might not be any, um, especially, you know, you we talked about how other Republican, you know, governors and secretaries of state who control elections, they're not against mail-in voting. Some of them have had it for for years. Um, and yet this seems to be some kind of strategy that, uh, like everything else that happens with the Republican Party, they fall in line and figure out a way to follow Trump's lead, even if it's against their own interests and against what they know to be true. Now, Mark, uh, you have a kind of like analog on the on the GOP side I've, that I've read about recently. William Cons- Consovoy, is that, uh, uh, of Consovoy McCarthy, he seems to be the guy who's uh, you know, m- trying to make a case that there is voter fraud and stop all of this. Is he effectively your, you know, um, you know, to be dramatic about it, arch enemy and all of this um, kind of combat about voter rules? Um, I, I don't know that I would say arch enemy. Um, I, yeah. you know, I, that I, that I think goes too far. I do think that there is no question that he has emerged in recent, um, in recent months as the go-to person 
on the on the Republican side, and also, by the way, among a number of the right wing nonprofit organizations, um, right. uh, to try to uh, try to fight against voting rights. You know, the RNC um, announced first that it would spend ten million dollars in court fighting against voting rights, then doubled it to twenty million dollars um, uh, to fight against voting rights. But that that's only part of the picture, right? They have various other organizations, honest elections uh, being the most notable, and there's no question that Consovoy is litigating the most important cases, it seems, that the, that the RNC and other groups on the right, um, that the right have. Right. And what's this, you know, if you were to kind of like give us an assessment of where we stand today, you know, uh, are you winning? Are you, are you in a positive direction in terms of being able to establish mail-in voting or stop voter suppression? Where does it stand? Look, I, and I think, you know, I'll let Dale speak for himself, but I think if you take collectively the work that I'm doing, the work Dale is doing and a number of other groups, I think we're, I think we're winning more than we're losing is the way I, is the way I sometimes yeah. describe it. You know, we're not winning yeah. everywhere, uh, but we're winning, uh, you know, places where you wouldn't necessarily think we'd be winning. You know, Dale mentioned that he and I both had a, had a victory in South Carolina, um, uh, you know, uh, we uh, we had victories uh, in Montana over their ban on ballot collection. Uh, we've had um, we've had victories, uh, you know, in in Florida. So so, you know, I think we're we're the it's it's still the early innings because, um, you know, a lot of these cases remain in the courts in various places. But, you know, what I say to folks is that when the political branches fail to protect people's fundamental rights, we need to count on the courts to do that. And that's what I'm doing. It's what uh, it's what Dale and many other um, lawyers are doing. And, um, you know, we have to hope that um, that judges will will take seriously um, their obligations to make sure that every everyone's right to vote is protected, uh, right. and I'm not pessimistic. I'm I'm optimistic. Right. Well, you know, that's good to hear because the the fear that Joe Biden expressed, I think, is the fear that a lot of people have. You know, they they can imagine nightmare scenarios. <laughs> you know, unfolding in November, and there's a lot of agitation about that. One of the nightmare scenarios has to do with the postal system. I mean, you can't have mail-in voting without a postal system, and you know, in recent times, we've been hearing about the prospect of the postal system, you know, go being insolvent by the fall. And this is something that Trump wouldn't mind. He's he's antagonistic against the postal service. What what's the status of that um, in terms of you know the timeline here? I mean, have you guys been? I, I assume you've been following that pretty closely. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that uh, the postal service is. Uh, according to current projections, um, likely to become insolvent by, uh, you know, either late summer or early fall, and we'll have to shut down all but essential operations. Now, I think, you know, um, delivery of election-related materials, whether it's voter information, absentee ballot applications, or ballots themselves, um, you know, fall into the category of what's, you know, absolutely essential. But you know, as a practical matter, realistically, I think if the post office does become insolvent, you can expect just kind of disruptions across the board, regardless of what is or is not designated as, you know, essential activity. What, what I'm hopeful uh, about is that as Congress comes back to start talking about another round of um, COVID-related 
um, stimulus legislation or, or other kinds of emergency responsive leg response legislation that what we're hearing from, um, you know, rep some Republicans on the Hill about, you know, maybe letting the Postal Service go bankrupt or something like that is a lot of posturing, you know, um, to try to stake out, you know, uh, a bargaining position for this next round of legislation. I mean, there are a lot of rural voters who elect Republicans to Congress whose only kind of lifeline in terms of mail and delivery service is the postal service, right? There are places that the UPS, that UPS and FedEx just don't even go, right? Um, yeah. And I, 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 it just would, you know, stun me if they were willing to sort of give the middle finger to their own constituents this way, um, who, who, with whom I cannot imagine um, letting the Postal Service, you know, go bankrupt would be um, a particularly popular move. But, you know, I've been surprised yeah. before. So, you know, what do I know? Right. And uh, there's a new Postmaster General. Is that correct? And does that have any bearing on any of this? You know, I don't know. Um, it is kind of unusual timing. And, uh, you know, it is someone who has kind of questionable qualifications for the uh, position. Right. Um you know, if this is just sort of the normal kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, elevation of incompetence that we've seen in this administration and grift, or if there's something, you know, it's hard to know if it's that or if there's something um, more nefarious at work here right now. Right. Well, that's something for us to keep an eye on, I think. Do you concur with what Dale's saying about the postal system and about, you know, the uh, potential for, you know, who knows what to happen there in the fall? I do, although I think I probably have a somewhat um, uh, more suspicious view of what's going on. I, I, I don't think it is coincidence that um, the president of the United States has all of a sudden shown a tremendous interest in the governance of the Postal Service um, five or six months before an election, and at the same time that uh, Republicans seem intent on letting the Postal Service um, run out of money. And I, I am very worried about this, and I'm very worried that that Congress will refund the postal will will fund the postal service, but do it in a highly discriminatory way for precisely the reasons that that Dale mentioned, which is that um, rural uh, district uh, and rural state Republicans will want their constituents get to get to get mail, uh, and I think we need to be very very careful that as we watch this issue go forward that we don't see a prioritization of mail service in rural areas and a deprioritization of mail service in urban areas. And that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried that that the political um, appointees who are now running the Postal Service, along with the Republican appropriators, will try to tilt the playing field so that people voting by mail in rural Wisconsin have one set of services and people voting in Milwaukee have reduced mail service um, because, and I think Dale can speak to this, we know that um, that the, the, the delay in the delivery of mail and the cutoff that states have for ballots having to be received by election day rather than postmarked by election day has a tremendously uh, negative impact and a disproportionately negative impact on younger voters and minority voters. Um, and that's, that's what I'm worried about. Wow. Can you expand on that, Dale? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, 
you know, a, most of the headlines on fights about voter access tend to be on kind of high profile, um, hot button issues like voter ID or, you know, restrictions on voter registration drives, um, things of that nature. But um, things like deadlines, the deadline by which you have to register to vote, um, the deadline by which you have to return your absentee ballot, as Mark was, you know, identifying, um, these kind of devil in the detail um, aspects of elections administration, you know, arguably have a much more significant effect in terms of, you know, how many people can actually vote and who can actually vote. And there's a lot yeah. of empirical evidence that the registration deadline, for example, has tremendous effects on voter turnout and disproportionately so on younger voters who, you know, maybe tune into the election a little bit um, later in the cycle as it gets closer, maybe miss a deadline, maybe move more frequently and, um, you know, fail to update their registrations in times to meet, you know, uh, some states have 20 or even 25 or 30 day um, registration deadlines rather than, you know, what is becoming more, a more common practice that about two dozen states have, which is letting people you know, actually register to vote on election day itself or update their registrations. And the same is true for absentee, you know, ballots. You know, we let people vote in person on election day. A lot of people kind of associate the act of voting with that, you know, um, first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And, you know, that's when a lot of people go to put their absentee ballots in the mail. And, right. you know, in Wisconsin, where Mark had a case, you know, I know that you know, there were tens of thousands of votes that would not have been counted in the primary in April had the deadline not been extended to include ballots that were um, mailed on Election Day itself. Yeah. I mean, it, from what you're saying, both of you are saying, it just seems like when we get to November and we have an election, it's going to be this like crazy quilt across the country of different kind of rules in different in different states. And that the concentration of attention is going to be on the battleground states and what kind of voting rules were allowed there. I mean, do you guys sort of see it that way, you know, when you're looking at it? Yeah, I mean, we have a exactly what you said. We have a very fragile election system in the best of times. When the when the sun is shining, the skies are blue, everyone is healthy. We we still have a fragile election system because it is, in fact, a quilt of highly localized voting rules about how you register, how you vote, where you vote, how your vote counts, um, how ballots that don't count get cured. And it is a very, very, um, uh, it is a very, very um, fragile system in part because it is so reliant on, as Dale said, large numbers of uh, you know, older people who are volunteering or near volunteering to work election day. Um, and it's an underfunded system. So when you put on top of that, the stressors of COVID and the stressors of election officials that don't want the process to succeed and the stressors of a president who is constantly talking down the system, then, um, then, you know, that's where you run into the kinds of problems that keep me up at night. Um, and, uh, I'm sure keep Dale up at night. Yeah. Well, I actually had a question here about what keeps you up at night. So you're, uh, you're, you got ahead of me there. Well, one thing I think that uh, people better wrap their heads around, and uh, I'm trying to wrap my mind around, is that we may not know, we, we probably won't know, the result of the election on election night. Is that 
something that we need to accept as a, p- a part of the mail-in voting situation? I do think we need to set expectations for certainly the possibility that we won't know the winner on election night. And this is this was true even before the pandemic hit. It's more true um, now, I think, given the anticipated you know increase in volume of mail-in votes. But you know, you just take two out of the three states that were pivotal in 2016, Michigan and Pennsylvania. Both of those states moved towards no excuse absentee voting between 2016 and 2020. Both of them were already seeing, you know, unprecedented levels of absentee ballot requests um, this year. That's, you know, even before the pandemic was really kind of hitting in full swing. Ultimately, Pennsylvania saw a more than 18 fold increase in the number of ballots requested um, for its 2020 primary as compared to 2016. And, you know, one quirk of the absentee ballot processing rules in those two states, and it's true in about a dozen others, is that um, those states are not permitted by law. Um, They're not permitted to start processing their ballots until election day itself. I think in Pennsylvania's case, not even until um, under normal circumstances until the polls actually close. So, mm. you know, and those ballots, they take longer to process typically than ballots cast um, in person. Um, so, right. you know, here are two of the three pivotal states in um, the 2016 election. They're going to have no excuse um, absentee voting for the first time in a, in a general presidential election ever. Um, and they're going to have it during the pandemic when demand is going to, you know, surge um, even more. Um, if those states are close, it may very well be difficult to forecast the results. And if that's the case, I think people need to understand that that's normal, that there, that's not a sign of something wrong, that it's more important to get it right than yeah, to get it done get it right than, than to get it done quickly. We've gotten so used right. to instant gratification and the you know breaking news, you know explosions on CNN and you know MSNBC for the you know, um, forecasting the winners. And I think we need to tamp down those expectations a little bit. The nightmare scenario, I think, and this is something that you were alluding to, and Mark was as well about like what keeps us up at night is imagine you go to bed on Tuesday night and one candidate is ahead in say those states or some others, but as the absentee ballots start coming in, um, the lead changes, right? And if, yep. if if it's Trump who goes from leading to falling behind, I mean, you know, he's laid the groundwork for what I think his 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 game plan is going to be, right? Casting, exactly. you know, showing doubt about the integrity of ballots cast by mail um, so that he can try to, you know, raise completely unfounded concerns about the um, integrity of the election result itself and try to delegitimize it. And if we're there, we're really in uncharted territory. Um, Absolutely. I mean, people worry about the transition of power and about whether Trump would give it up. And this is it. Clearly, he's setting a trap here. If he loses, then he can send us into this wormhole. Yeah. And let me let me expand on one thing Dale said, because I think it's really, really important, um, is if you look at states that have vote by mail as their dominant system, we are accustomed in those states to not having full election results on election night. I mean, the fact is, we if you look at Arizona in the last election, we saw exactly what Dale just said, which was 
you in the Senate race, you saw a uh, a uh, election night numbers that showed the Republican candidate leading, and then finally, over time, you saw as as all the ballots were being processed, you saw the Democrat take the lead and actually win by a pretty healthy margin. So, so it's not unusual to see those kinds of shifts. You know, Donald Trump tweeted about me in uh, uh, in regard to the Florida Senate race that I was the Democratic Party's best election stealing lawyer because he saw exactly this in Florida in 2018. You saw the the Senate race get dramatically closer and closer as the mail ballots were being processed. And that's because you oftentimes see um, the election day vote being more Republican and the vote by mail vote, particularly the later vote by mail vote being more Democratic. Now, that's not always the case, but that's not an unusual circumstance. Right. And and I think the press and the media would be well um, would serve itself well and serve the, the public well by looking at states like Washington State and Oregon and Colorado and even states like um, Arizona that have large vote by mail. California, you know, Dale, I don't know how long, how many days was it before we had the final results in California elections? States that have lots of vote by mail have those kinds of um, uh, multi day counting processes, and those are not errors. That's That's part of the system. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like uh, part of the voter education aspect of mail-in voting is to prepare people for the outcome. You know, the, the outcome might not be an immediate cable news alert and telling you what happened. You may have to wait, you know, um, to sort of uh, inoculate against this, you know, some immediate 24-hour accusation that the whole thing's fraudulent. Yeah. And part of this, by the way, is also, you know, I come back to the, the role of the media on this yeah. because the truth is the media is the one who is setting that expectation. And they're setting that expectation in part because of, of the predominance of in-person voting, but they're also setting that expectation because of the reliance on exit polls. I mean, let's be honest, the media calls elections already with very, very partial results in many places based on exit polling and other historical data. Yeah. So the media, I think, has an obligation to tell voter, to tell the public early and often that, you know, what tools are they going to use to predict the outcome of elections? Are they going to wait for all the results to be in? Are they going to use some sampling techniques? Um, and if they're waiting for all the results or sampling techniques that require um, waves of absentee ballots to be counted, to be transparent about that. Because I think there's a lot of confusion right now already in the system, in the public, about how exactly the media calls an election at 8.01 when the polls closed at 8 um, right. versus other states where they don't. Right. Well, and this, again, back to 2000, you know, that whole system, predictive system broke down around Florida, as we'll recall. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, soul searching after that by the networks about how, how it was they came up with these results. And supposedly there was supposed to be reform and we'll never do it again. So maybe huh. it's worth remembering that again and remembering what not to do. Uh, but, you know, they have their own motivations, as we know. Um, so, you know, the uh, at the top of this um, conversation, we mentioned that Joe Biden quote, that the, his greatest fear is that this election is going to be stolen. And in, in a way, do you guys feel like you know, I mean, it's putting you in a kind of a um, 
superhero role here. You're, you're being asked to kind of go out there and wage this battle and prevent that from happening. Um, that's got to, I mean, you must feel like, and I'm, I don't want to presume to know what you feel, but uh, it seems like this is going to be the most important, um, you know, battle that you've uh, ever waged on behalf of voting rights in your lifetime. How do you feel about that, the two of you? Mark, do you want to take <laughs> I was going to let you go first, Dale. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, how about Mark first? All right. Thanks. Thanks, Dale. Um, look, I think that, there is, I think that um, there's a lot of truth to that. I think that, you know, Dale and I have, have been in the trenches together, um, literally, uh, in a courtroom in North Carolina, um, after North Carolina passed its, uh, restrictive voting laws in 2013. Um, and, uh, we have been fighting the, the same fights, similar fights, uh, around the country ever since. Um, and, you know, it does feel like this time is different. It does feel like, you know, the, the, the stakes for this in 2020 are so much higher and it feels like the other side is so much more committed. You know, a lot of the, the litigation that, that I've been involved in, um, you know, you have a state, it has a law, um, it wasn't a well thought through law, or maybe it was worse than that. Maybe it was an intentionally discriminatory law, um, and you litigate it, um, you know, the fact that the RNC is dedicating $20 million and, you know, really well-resourced uh, 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 attorneys to then come in and fight on the other side in addition to the state has made these fights harder. The fact that the president of the United States constantly badmouths voting has made these fights harder. The fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic has made these fights harder. Um so yeah, it does feel like sometimes this is the fight of 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 um of my life in terms of uh litigation. But uh thankfully uh there are several of us, uh you know, Dale and I being two of them, two two people, but there are several of us fighting these fights. Yeah. Um Dale, I don't know if you feel like you want to expand on that, but I mean I and I just want to point out really quickly that uh, Dale, you were involved in, you know, fighting the Trump administration's attempt to make a citizen put a citizenship question into the census form, which was like kind of a bald attempt to intimidate yeah. uh, immigrants and uh, you know communities uh, that might be confused by this. And um, you know, this is, um, I, I, to what degree is is this personal for you? Uh, <sighs> Ooh. Is that a trick question? No, I mean, <laughs> Dale, Dale um, wishes I he had Dale wishes he had answered my question instead. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wouldn't. I mean, I, w I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't care deeply about um, not just the state of our democracy, but about justice, about justice and fairness for uh, voters who haven't gotten a fair shake historically. Um, in this country, in many places, um, you know, I came to this work because I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. I wanted to work on issues of racial discrimination and racial justice. I found a home in voting rights, um, and you know, it, it does feel a little different from 
previous elections. Election years are always kind of crazy for voting rights lawyers. They're, they're always kind of hectic. A lot of unknown unknowns, a lot of last minute emergencies that we have to deal with. But um, this election does feel um, different. And I do feel very personally invested in making sure that everyone who wants to vote and that voters of color in particular um, um, get a fair shake and an opportunity to vote safely. The pandemic has completely upended our plans and made things more difficult. I'd say around this time of year, normally we may have filed, you know, two to four new cases in addition to kind of litigating our existing kind of complement of cases that we would have filed the year or two years before the election. Um, you know, we filed 11 in the last 12 weeks um, and we have more planned right now. And that's just on kind of safety issues, getting getting it so that, you know, the rules are as accessible as possible for voting by mail. Everyone can, can is eligible to do so, removing unnecessary barriers. But we haven't even started turning, you know, the ACLU, we haven't even started turning to issues like what we saw in Georgia and Wisconsin. I know Mark has a case in Nevada on, you know, the, the really unconscionable waiting times that people who've tried to vote in person have experienced. So, you know, we're just drinking, we're all just drinking from a fire hose right now. And I just don't expect right. it to let up between now and November. But even, even if we take care of all of that and, you know, Undoubtedly, we're not going to win every case, as, as, as Mark noted. But even if we do everything we can on the rules, what is so troubling is having a president who is doing everything he can to delegitimize the system, because that's not something that we can litigate our way out of, right? Yeah. That is a broader kind of political and cultural and social fight that, you know, and news media fight that has to be waged to ensure the peaceful transition of power. Right. Dale uh, Ho and Mark Elias, I want to thank you both for coming on this program. This is such an important issue. You guys are very uh, eloquent and uh, brought us really right up to the front lines of what's going on. And um, I wish you both the best. And uh, it's going to be a long, hot summer, but a very interesting one. So uh, hang in there. And thanks for being on Inside the Hive. And that's it for our podcast this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Mark Elias and Dale Ho. And I'd like to thank Emily Jane Fox, my co-hosts. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can get those on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13, especially my producer, Bob Tabador. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And we'll see you next week.